This is Anthony Anarino, and you're listening to In the Arena. You know what I like most about text message is that no matter what, you know that the person that you sent the text message to received the text message. Even if they're not getting back to you, you do know that they read it and you know that they're aware that you're pursuing them or that you have something you need to share with them. That's not always true for email. And in fact, I find that when I send an email, I have this great fear that it's now at the very bottom of the inbox because there's been 2,200 emails that have come in after my email was sent. So I want to give a huge shout out to today's sponsor, MailTag.io. MailTag.io is a Chrome browser extension for your Gmail that allows you to track and schedule your emails. It's super helpful, and I highly recommend it if you're in sales, specifically because you receive real-time alerts on your desktop as soon as your prospect opens your emails or clicks on a link within your email. And that problem I described here at the beginning, you don't know whether or not they saw the email because there's so much incoming for most of us that we can't keep up with the email. In this case, you can set up a follow-up sequence so that another email goes out if there's not a response, and it will literally push your email back to the top of that inbox. So important right now when so many of us live in our inbox and where it's so difficult to get attention. So go check out mailtag.io. You'll find the link in the show notes and take advantage of the 14-day trial. If you go to Google and you type in the word Seth, the very first link you will find is a link to Seth Godin's blog, Seth's blog. I think it's seths.blog. But when your first name brings you to the link to your blog, that gives you some idea of the popularity of Seth Godin and his work around marketing, and I would say his work around doing meaningful work. If you don't know who Seth Godin is, then I don't know where you've been. If you haven't read Tribes, if you haven't read The Purple Cow, if you haven't read The Dip, if you haven't read Lynchpin, and if you haven't read my favorite Seth Godin book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn, then you are truly missing out. But today, Seth is here to talk to us about his new book, by the way, all of which have been New York Times bestsellers. This is marketing, and of all the books, I love all of Seth's books. I even have the two giant 17-pound books of his collected blog posts sitting on my filing cabinet. This is my second favorite after What to Do When It's Your Turn for its depth, for the full dose of Seth Godin's philosophy that you get, and for the practical, tactical application that you find in this book, This is Marketing. This is Seth Godin in the arena. You want to talk about marketing? Let's. Do you like marketing? It's been very, very good to me. <laughs> it's a fascinating topic because as soon as you figure it out, the fact that you figure it out makes a change. Well, you think you figured it out, right? Well, you figured it out for today, for this moment. Today. I want to talk about that. I'm going to hold this up because I'm probably going to share this video too. This is the galley copy of the book. I have the real copy on order and I'll get the hard cover at some point in time. So I want to start. I've got a whole list of questions here that Let's we'll- go. Rock can I swap the word sales for marketing in this book? Almost. 
but not almost. So tell me, what do you see as the fundamental difference that prevents me from saying all the things that you're saying true about marketing are also true about sales? Sales needs to happen with a human being in real time because that human being, through the act of being there, brings with them both tension and the release of tension. And marketing doesn't need that to exist. So there has to be a fork in the road. Okay. And I have a question about the tension in the release because I wrote that down. I thought it was interesting. I want to know what you mean by that from the marketing perspective in the book of the creation of that tension and the release of the tension. So if you go into a retail store and someone who gets paid $12 an hour says, can I help you? And you say, I'm just looking. Both people were just lying and no tension was created. You're just, right? Whatever happens is going to happen. Whereas if you drive a Bentley that's a year and a half old and Maserati comes out with a car that's better in your eyes than the Bentley, now you have a problem. Tension is created because either you have to acknowledge you no longer have the fanciest car of its kind, in which case you have to acknowledge you're moving down the status ladder, or you have to embrace the tension of knowing that there's this other thing you want to do to realize your dreams that you weren't planning on doing yesterday. So tension was created. This is the fundamental thing that I didn't expect to be as clear as it is in this book is what you just described as the very, very human longing or desire or the real need that's being met when we're marketing that has nothing to do whatsoever with what it is that we're selling. And I spend a lot of time trying to help salespeople understand what somebody really needs doesn't show up in the conversation. Right. So you have to be a lot more intuitive. And I guess the whole thread of your work, and I've read all of your work, has sort of been leading to this. But for some reason with this one, it just feels more clear in how you're saying, like, look, you've got to look deeper. You've got to see something. And then you have to help them see something that they may not be aware of. And I think from a sales perspective, what I've told people is you have to help people discover something about themselves. And so discovery is not just me asking you what's keeping you up at night. It's helping them go, wait a second, I see, I want something different here. Okay, good. Now we've got something. So let me argue for a second that most of the preventable pain in our world is caused by a mismatch between what people need and want and what they think they need and want. Bad marketers are the cause of a lot of that. (laughs) Right. And by bad marketers, I also mean, you know, demanding parents that the parent says to the kid, you're not going to be successful unless you have an advanced degree. So the kid thinks I'm not going to be successful unless I have an advanced degree. Plus, I want to please my parents and then ends up for 40 years hating being a lawyer. Right. Because there was a mismatch between what they really wanted and needed and what they thought they wanted and needed. And it gets worse when someone's doing it to make a profit. So we show up and we show up and show up and say, if you don't have one of these, you're a loser. Well, If I don't want to be a loser and I believe you, then I go and buy that, but now I'm in debt. And being in debt makes me feel worse than I would have felt if I didn't have that thing. And so my point is, someone asked me this morning, so are you saying that marketers need to be ethical? And I'm saying, no, human beings need to be ethical. (laughs) And if you want to be a human being who's proud of the work you do, and you happen to be in the business of causing change, which means you're a marketer, then yeah, you need to be ethical. I like the just extending it to if you're a human, you should be ethical. That's probably a good starting point. And I went to law school, but I met lawyers and I met politicians and I decided to be happy instead of doing either one of those endeavors, which turns out to have been the right answer for me personally anyway. I think there's a lot to what people think they want and need. And you know, for my kids, I hope they get a C in some class. 
I hope they're like, this is not for me. I hated this class. I never want to see it again in my life. Good. Get a C. Don't put the effort over there. It's not what you're here for. Do something different. It's fine. And I got a kid who's a theater kid. Get an A in theater if that's your thing. That's great. And if you get a C in Spanish, don't be a Spanish actor. Okay, that's it. You don't need to worry about it. It's not going to happen. Marketing. So the thing I think is different between sales and marketing is that we're very, very close to the customer. So it's one-to-one in most cases, or now one to a small group of eight people in a room, B2B, whatever that looks like. But marketing has always been, for me, one-to-many. And very early on in the book, you say, not mass. Right. Well, okay, so not mass. Marketing is one-to-many. And then you say, no, not mass. So explain that cognitive sure. dissonance you've given me. Well, first of all, I think it used to be one-to-many. <laughs> I'm okay with one-to-many. And by that, I mean the smallest viable audience, the smallest group you can thrive with. So if it's 150 people who live in Pierre, North Dakota, and is in North Dakota or South Dakota, who live in Pierre and love their Harley, that's a viable group. That's a many. It's not one. It's a many, but it's a small many. And therefore, you're on the hook. And being on the hook is the experience that salespeople are used to and that marketers are afraid of. And that's one reason why salespeople disrespect marketers is because marketers are hiding behind average, behind mass, behind churn it out. And salespeople are like, wait, I have to go into the field and look someone in the eye. So what I'm saying is, listen to your salespeople and understand you can send your salespeople to anyone. Pick the anyone, be specific. And if you can make something that's perfect for that sales call and this sales call and this sales call, just a many, then they will work better. And if it works better, those people will adopt it. And if those people adopt it, they will tell their friends. And then your sales force doesn't have to do all the heavy lifting. There was this great show on HBO called Deadwood, and it was about the gold rush. You ever see that show? I think the profanity would have made my hair fall out, but I've heard it was really good. <laughs> well, 76 F-bombs on average per slightly shorter than a one-hour episode. But at one point, the main bad guy, Al Swearingen, who's literally making a million dollars a week in 1872 money, taking money from the people who are trying to make their riches in gold as fast as they can take it out of a gold mine. And at one point, they come to him because they need him to kill somebody, the very bad guy who you can't help but love because it's Ian McShane. They give him a gun and he's like, I'm terrible with a gun. I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. I like a knife and I want to be close to the person. And he goes into this terrible description of why he likes it. And I think that's what I've always thought marketers thought of salespeople. Like, you're that close to them that you can actually see them, what they look like. How terrible is that for you that you have to do that? I want to sell them, but I want to be far away when that happens. And you're going to be right close with them. And and I'm shifting it from murder to dating, right? I'm saying this is something we're doing with people, not to them. Right. If you're doing it with them, it helps to be close. And so now I'm going to frame this as sort of many, many. Okay, I'll take that. So like not many, many, just many, many, whatever the viable audience is for you, which again goes against the common idea of, you know, everybody's our prospect. No. That's right. And I'm not making this up. What I've done is looked at every success I could find in the last 10 years. And every single one follows these rules. You can't name a mass market brand built on television for average people that was launched in the last 10 years. There used to be one of those every week. And now there isn't one in a decade. But the markets now are so fragmented with all these channels. you know. And I, I've been thinking about music. There's not going to be a Led Zeppelin because right. we don't all listen to the same station anymore. And everybody's Spotify's whatever their Spotify is. 
And so it's hard for you to get the same kind of traction that a brand would have gotten. And so this is the response to that in some level. Exactly. And human beings, at least Americans that I know, are missing something from the fabric. Because if you're 15 and you grew up with micro markets, you're impatient when it's not exactly what you want. When a track comes on the radio that's not for you, you're impatient because it all should be for you. But what the 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds miss is I'd like to buy the world a Coke. They miss the feeling that we are all here together. And marketers miss it most of all. But someone's got to tell them it's never coming back. No, it's too far gone. I think sales has evolved from making markets to serving markets. I think that's been the primary change. And there's something that you use as a metaphor or a story in the book that I use as well, and I've used it for a long time. I think that there was a time where a high pressure in a hard sale may have been necessary. I have an ice box on my back porch and a milkman. And you're like, no, you need a refrigerator. My grandparents didn't have a refrigerator. Their grandparents didn't have a refrigerator. I don't need a refrigerator. And you know, so there was probably more pushing hard to convince somebody, but that's all changed. And so the object now doesn't create the case for change. And so I think as marketing has evolved, it seems like we now have a different role to play. And I think you're trying to describe it in a different way. And this is marketing. I think in the book, you're trying to say marketing has evolved from this mass mass thing that wasn't personal and it wasn't speaking to this audience with the kind of clarity that you're offering people here. That's my view is I think you're offering clarity. Who is this that you're really trying to serve? What is it that they really want? And it's sort of the evolution from everybody's my prospect. I want everybody to drink Coca-Cola to these people, specifically these people. Yeah, I agree with the second part. I want to put a small pin in the first part. Sure. Um, you are correct that the manufacturing of objects is no longer the primary role of the economy, right? But I would say that getting someone to take their tuberculosis meds deserves a hard sell. I would say that figuring out how to intervene with somebody who's about to get caught up in a health crisis is worth a hard sell. So there are hard sells to be done. How do we know that when they're okay? The way I do it is this. Is the person you sold to a week later going to send you a thank you note? And if the answer is yes, then you are doing it for them. If the answer is no, that they succumb to the pressure and now you have their money and they're upset about it, if you're a payday loan place, then I don't think it's appropriate. And so I think that the tension that a salesperson adds to the table We know that this is required for, I mean, the simple evidence is serve yourself car dealers don't work. And they don't work because the customer wants the tension to get over the hump, to buy the car they're glad they bought a week later. And when we give them the option of not having that, they don't buy the car. My car dealer is terrible at this. Every time I go in for service, they give me a car that's less than the car I already have. And I keep explaining to them, don't you want me to desire something better? Why are you not seducing me? I want to be seduced. You need to help me with this. You write, marketing is the generous act of helping others become who they seek to become. Differentiate this view from what I see as modern marketing on the internet as what I would describe as the picks and shovels guys who believe that they are selling people who they could become with the get rich quick. Marketing is something that you do to people so that you can get rich fast. Okay. So I guess what I would say is- You smiled when I said picks and shovels, guys, because you knew exactly what I meant. Yes. I knew where you were going with this. I was thinking of Levi Strauss. If you can sell a $149 eight-page PDF that tells people the secret of getting more Facebook clicks, and you can sell it to them 
without a hard sell, then you actually are helping them achieve their dreams and desires because they're shortcutters. These are people who resist the option of hard work and who don't want free advice. So showing up with that to the right person on the right day is in fact a version of marketing with what that person dreamed of to begin with. The place where it gets into trouble is after you make your first $50,000, you say, how do I get the next circle of people? And the next circle of people don't have that dream. So then you start adding all this cruft around it, and that's when you fall off the rails. When we've built the marketing seminar online and Alt-MBA, the shortcutters showed up right away. They were the easiest sales. And we sent them away. We did not accept their money, and we gave them a refund if they signed up by accident. Because we said, we know that these are the easy sales for us. We know you will be happy if you buy it, because we could make it feel like a shortcut. But we don't want you spreading the word about what we do. And we don't want you driving us to make a course for shortcutters. So instead, please leave. We're here for a different dream. And it turns out that's harder for us because those people don't like signing up for a hard workshop. They would prefer to stick with their status quo because they've been burned before. And so part of the discipline here is being able to be honest about the smallest viable audience. What do they believe? What do they want? And if they get what they want, will you be proud of that? Because I'm not sure that it's ethical to sell high nicotine cigarettes to people who want to smoke. I think we each have the power and the leverage, and it's probably better to say, someone else can do that. I'm not going to. I think that's the right answer. And we're back to ethics. And there's a lot of ethics in the book, not in a way that it's all in there. Basically, you're drawing a very hard line for people. I think when people, I don't know what the minimum viable audience is, but the people that this book is for are going to get it immediately. And I, I'm going to ask you this, but I'll just go ahead and ask you now. I was going to ask you later. What is the difference between this book and other books you've written? It feels different to me. So let it me does. say. It, it feels different to me too. I think the difference is the books that most people know me for, I took an idea and I fleshed it out. And I said, here, once you get the joke, you can finish reading the book. You're done. And I needed to do that in that medium because I couldn't do it in any other medium. But the online world has become sophisticated enough. It doesn't pay to wait a year to bring an idea like that fully formed to the world. Here, right after I got into the Marketing Hall of Fame, I thought, well, okay, I'm old enough now. It's time for me to say, line in the sand. And so what I felt like I was doing was writing, not an edict, not a testament, but the container. This, and that's why Adrian's title is so good. This is marketing. It's not that, it's not that, it's this. And if you read this and four people on your team read this and you have a meeting on Monday, you're not going to agree with everything I said but it's going to be a really good meeting because you're going to get to a new place as opposed to treading water in your old place. That's what I was trying to write. And that's why it's not shorter because I didn't want to write an encyclopedia, but I wanted to be complete. It is a larger book than Purple Cow or Tribes or The Dip. And it, it definitely, it feels different. And it definitely feels like, I don't want to say manifesto because that word's not right either. But it is sort of laying out some sort of a boundaries and some structure to, I think, some arguments that you've made for a long time, but maybe they're more complete because the length of this now has allowed you to go deeper. Yeah, I think the true fans like you probably only got 10 pages of new material, but that's because I'm consistent. But what I think I have to offer besides the fundamental new ideas is that because I got to practice the book on 6,000 people in the seminar, I figured out which ones were working. I put more of that in. The book's play tested. And I've never done that with a book before. I've never had the opportunity in a book to write about something after I had interacted with other humans about it. And so I feel much more confident. Like 
little section of the book where I say, here's one little twist for you. And this works for salespeople too. Get rid of the word prospect, get rid of the word customer, call them students. If you have enrollment from a student, what can you teach them? You're leading right into my questions because I read enrollment and I'm like, what is he talking about? What is enrollment? So explain enrollment. There's a great sales book, which you know better than I probably get, let's get real or let's not play. Love it. Mahan Colasso. Yeah. And the idea behind the book is if I'm going to make a complex sale to a big organization, it can't be adversarial because it's not worth my time. Right. Tell me where we're going. Tell me how we get there. Tell me what I need to, to get there. Because if you won't tell me those things, we're not real. I'm not going to play. Well, the same thing is true if I want to teach you how to play croquet. If every time we're going back and forth, I have to beg you to listen to the next lesson about croquet, you're not enrolled in the journey. And it turns out teaching people something they want to learn is a hundred times easier than teaching them something they don't want to learn. So what we do as marketers is we earn enrollment. We get people to raise their hand and say, yes, I'd like to know more about that. Because at that point, we can stop with all the come-ons and the promos and the shortcuts and just say, okay, here we go. This is what I'm going to teach you. And that gives us self-respect and it gives the person we're selling to and marketing to dignity. Because we're saying to them, you've already told me you're going where we want to go. Here's what I have to offer. If it's not for you after you learn this, we're square. And I've got your shortcut for this. I'm just cutting it out right now and I'm moving it up because you're jumping ahead of me, but that's okay. I'm taking you on a path, but you're taking me there first. (laughs) My product is for people who believe blank. Right. I will focus on people who want blank. And I promise that engaging with what I make will help you get blank. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. And it takes humility because what that means is if someone doesn't believe what you believe, and if they don't want what you want, you need to say thank you and give them your competitor's phone number. And if the promise you're making isn't going to get them what they said they wanted to get, then you have to go back to square one and start over. But those three pieces are the platform for ethical, powerful marketing. Because if you have the only people you're marketing to are people who believe this and want this, then all you have to do is promise them that, keep the promise, and you're done. It's so simple when you say it that way. (laughs) It's so much harder in execution. Give me an example of inventing something worth making with a story worth telling and a contribution worth talking about. Okay, so my friend Sean Askinosi entered a market that was 250 years old, which is chocolate. There wasn't a chocolate shortage. And if all you wanted was chocolate, you could buy it. There wasn't even a bean to bar chocolate shortage because John Scharfenberger was making that. You could buy that. So Sean says, well, why even bother making chocolate? And Sean's mission is not just to make chocolate. It's to make chocolate with beans from farmers he has met and whose kids he has sent to school and who he has paid five times the market rate. Now, that story is true. He goes to Tanzania. He goes to the Philippines. He brings school kids with him to have life-changing experiences. So that's what the chocolate bar is. The chocolate bar is an edible story. It reminds you that a human being who could do something else with his time, who used to make six figures as a lawyer, has chosen to do this on your behalf. So for people who believe that there's more to life than self-indulgence, for people who want a way of expressing their desire for a more connected community. I promise you that buying an Ask an Ozy bar will get you closer to being the kind of person you want to be, even when you're indulging in a treat. So smart. It's very straightforward. There's a little coffee shop at the corner of 6th Street and Long in Columbus, very close to where I have a flat. It's called the Roosevelt. 
and all of their money goes to people overseas who are starving and need water and all these things. So it's packed all day, every day, number one coffee shop, and they have a story and there's a purpose. And if you believe what they believe, that's where you're going to get coffee. Right. But if not, Dunkin' Donuts is only four doors down and Dunkin' Donuts is not their enemy. Having a Dunkin' Donuts on the block helps them. It doesn't hurt them. I'm going to get to that because I want to talk about two teachers not competing. So we'll get there. I've got that for the end because I want to hear you rip on that. You've written so much about culture in this book. I want to talk about that for just a second. So I think what you wrote is people like us do things like this is how each of us understand culture. Right. Share more about that. And you weave in Lakoff's idea about worldviews and the importance of those to understanding this mini market that you're talking about. So that was the original title for the book. People like us do things like this. And people like us is the minimum viable audience, the smallest group that you're going to achieve. And things like this is the tribal reference. It's This is what we're going to show each other. It's the status part. And we see this in the way, you know, if you meet someone in Japan and shake hands with them, it will not be like meeting them in Missouri and shaking hands with them. If you interact with someone on the internet and they're typing in all caps, there's nothing that says they're yelling. You just decided they were yelling because people like us don't use all caps unless we're yelling. So that's all culture is, is a mutual understanding of who the people like us are and what the things like this are. And that what marketers do when we are doing important work is establishing who the people like us are and establishing what the things like this are, giving more status to the people who get it, taking away status from the people who don't, and then cycling that process as we end up changing the culture. And you reference Lakoff. George Lakoff's point is that the worldview each of us carries around is not true except to us. And to us, it is the way we see the world. And I would love it if we could change people's worldview for the better. It's really, really hard. So until you've succeeded at simply making a difference and making a living, I would not take on the task of, changing the minds and the souls of people who are not enrolled in your journey. Start with your people and then surround those other people. Because if those people are surrounded, the thing most of them want most of all is to fit in. And if they're surrounded by people like us who are doing things like that, they will stop doing things like this. And an example is mothers against drunk driving. The whole designated driver, drunk driving thing, they didn't go to the drunk drivers with this campaign. They went to everyone who was open to hearing what they had to say. And if enough of them surrounded the drunk drivers, shamed them, ostracized them, lowered their status, those people are going to stop being drunk drivers. And the problem isn't eliminated yet because it runs deeper than that. But as a marketing effort, it's way more effective than going to people who fly a lot in private jets and saying, stop flying in private jets because it's hurting the atmosphere. They're not going to stop if you say that to them. I think the recipe for suffering is deciding that you have to help other people change their worldview. That's probably the greatest recipe. If you want to be miserable, want something for other people that they don't want for themselves, and that will probably do it for you as well as anything else I can think of. There you go. Human beings tell themselves stories. Those stories, as far as each of us are concerned, are completely and totally true, and it's foolish to try to persuade them or us otherwise. So I want to say two things here. One, you're hinting at something very different about worldviews and deep human structures, or maybe you're not, I think you are. But isn't marketing about trying to persuade people to take on something and take on a new belief or something like that? So my question is, what is marketing if we're not trying to persuade? The best way for someone to change their worldview is through action, not through words. 
if you want to find people who are really upset and nervous about atmosphere change, climate change, go find some fishermen because they're spending all day right in the face of it, right? Their politics are like 10th on the list compared to what they're doing all day. And that's different than showing up in front of a classroom of people and writing a formula on the wall and saying, see that objects drop from the roof will drop at the same pace, even though they weigh different amounts, because you can prove it and they still won't change their mind. So what marketers really do is say, based on what you believe, here is a story that will help you get more of what you want. So when Harley Davidson shows up to a bunch of ragtag outsiders and says $15,000 for this motorcycle, they're not saying to them, I want to change your mind about society. They're saying to them, if you see yourself as an outsider who wants to be part of a cadre of outsiders, we have one for you. And it's only $15,000 to join. So they haven't changed their worldview at all. They've just given them a way to express their worldview. And that's good marketing. Well, it makes the customer happy. It allows you to serve the customer and it lets you do it again tomorrow. So by the definitions of marketing, yeah, I think that's good marketing. My younger brother is a conspiracy theorist. And when I read that section, I'm like, yes, never mind. I understand now. I'm not going to say anything else here, but I just want to say thank you for that. It helped me like, oh, okay, yeah, that's right. I got it. I had a tough time thinking about you standing in India conducting eye exams, which I have no idea what makes you think you're qualified to do that kind of work in the first place, and then selling people glasses. How did this happen? Well, I'm one of the founding advisors to the Acumen Fund. It's been around for 18 years. Acumen invests in entrepreneurs who build businesses bigger than themselves, big businesses that do business with the poor. And the idea is simple. When you do business, you are a customer. You are not a victim. And dignity comes with that. And if you're a customer, you can say no. So the product has to get better. So when D-Light makes solar lanterns and they show up in a village with no electricity, most people don't buy one. So D-Light has to make the lantern ever better and ever cheaper. And eventually people buy one instead of a kerosene lantern. And now they're part of this system and it makes their lives better. The same way being able to buy stuff made our lives better. So that's Acumen's mission. And on a not often enough basis, I work with the entrepreneurs to help them do their marketing more effectively, not to people like me, but to people who make $3 a day. Now, all these businesses are run by people who live in the location. So they're not fancy New Yorkers. But even so, if you are running an organization like this, you're not used to making $3 a day. So we imagine that other people want what we want. So we say to ourselves, well, I remember what happened to me when I was 44. All of a sudden, I couldn't see. And the thing is that if you work with silk or you weave or you work with numbers for a living and you hit 44 and you can't see, now you're unemployed. And for the next 30 years, your family has to take care of you. And so it's an urgent problem that we can solve for $3. Now, one way to do it is find the billion people on earth who need glasses, airlift them a pair of glasses and charge the Gates Foundation $3 billion. The problem with that is those people aren't your customers. You will not get a feedback loop in place and it's hard to scale. So this company, Vision Spring, has figured out how to get the glasses for two, sell them for three, pay everyone in the supply chain, do it again tomorrow. And I went to help their entrepreneur figure out why people weren't buying the glasses. So I wasn't conducting eye exams. I actually know how. You just hand someone a sheet of paper and say, can you read this? And if the answer is no, you say, try these on. And if the answer is yes, 
oh, you need glasses. It's that simple, <laughs> right? We're not working Let's on glaucoma on. here. We're just uh, saying you need reading glasses. That's all. Uh, optometrist for people with no medical education. Exactly. Can you read this? No? Okay. Can you now? Yes. Got it. Exactly. So the story that I tell, and I've told it before, but it changed my life, is it's 100 degrees. I don't like being hot. And <laughs> it's noon. And there's a line in this little tiny village for the eye test. And the reason there's a line is because there's nothing to do at noon when it's 105 degrees. No one's working. And everyone in the line is wearing, men and women, wearing Indian work shirts, which are these beautiful embroidered white shirts, thin fabric with a pocket right here. And I can see through the fabric. They have rupees in the pocket. So here's what we know. The people in line are over 40. The people in line have money. The people in line are not wearing glasses. The people in line know people who do wear glasses, so it is not a strange foreign technology. Those four things are true. They get to the front of the line and they say, the person sitting at the little table says, here's the eye chart. People fail. They say, here are the sample glasses. People succeed. Perfect. Then they say, go over to this table. There are 10 individually wrapped pairs of glasses, all different styles, treating you with full respect and dignity as a shopper. Which one of these, they're all the same price, $3. Which one do you want? And two thirds of the people bought nothing. They left with no glasses. Now, I get choked up just telling the story again because I'm sitting there and I don't know the answer and I don't have a theory. And I know what I would do. I know what you would do. I know what everyone I know would do. And it's not happening. So I stand there and I stand there. And then I go and I change one thing and we double the percentage of people who buy the glasses. And it was like the finest moment of my marketing career. (laughs) And the thing I did was I took away all the sample glasses, all the 10 choices, all the individually wrapped glasses, all of them. So now all that's left are the samples. And we say to the person who's taking the eye test, the next person, here are some glasses, try them on. And they go, I can see. And we say, now you have a choice. You can either give us $3 or give us back the glasses you're wearing. That isn't shopping. That is desire to avoid loss. And if you are from a multi-generational family where $3 a day is all you got, shopping is not your friend. Shopping could cost you. It could cost you dinner. It could cost you healthcare. It could kill somebody. Because if you go shopping to buy something you've never purchased and you get it wrong, someone's going to get hurt. So no one goes shopping. It just doesn't exist. You go replenishing, the tobacco store will sell you that kerosene you ran out of, but you don't go to the tobacco store and say, oh, what's new? No one says that because <laughs> it's too scary. So was it wrong, manipulative of me to say, I know what people like this guy want. He doesn't want what I want. He doesn't know what I know. He doesn't believe what I believe. He doesn't have what I have. No, I think that's practical empathy. And it wasn't the sympathy of here, it's free. It was the practical empathy of saying, if I saw the world the way you saw the world, I would act just like you. And what I would do is I would play it safe. So the safest thing to do is keep the sample glasses because it's working. Don't break something that's working. And as far as I know, that doubling has continued and that's the way they sell glasses now. So two things. One, that is at every step along the way, create and relieve tension. And so it was both the creation and the relief of the tension for sure. The second thing is, as you mentioned empathy throughout the book, and I wanted to comment on this because empathy to me means walking a mile in someone else's shoes. But I think that the real superpower is compassion, which means 
recognizing that the shoes are two sizes too small and getting them some shoes that fit in the first place, which means I'm not allowed to just be empathetic. I actually have to do something to help this person whose shoes I'm imagining myself in rather than just saying, wow, that must suck to have the shoes that don't fit you. Yes. But let's do something. But if we can add one more thing, which is the acumen model is the problem with giving the person new shoes is their feet will grow again. The goal is to teach people either to make shoes or to somehow prime the local economy so that the creation, sale, and purchase of new shoes continues to happen. And there is a huge need for emergency first aid in the developing world, but there's an even bigger need to build permanent structures that enable people to generate productivity. So I'm in favor of both. So you and I, are, I think, are in radical agreement on this one. A couple more questions. What is the difference between market-driven versus marketing-driven? And what is the shift that you're trying to help people recognize? George Mayfarth taught me this in 1983 when I had my first job because I, he was an old professor of mine at Tufts. And I was talking about this company where I worked. And I said, and I love it because I'm in the marketing department. It's very marketing-driven. And he stopped me and he said, you mean you go to meetings all the time and you work on logos and things that make the marketing department happy? I said, no, 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 no. Oh, he said, oh, you're market-driven. And so that's the difference. Market-driven means that we are listening and reacting and responding to delight the people we have chosen in our smallest viable audience. Marketing-driven means the actions of the marketing department are important. Do you think that the self-orientation that some sales and marketing organizations have is their primary obstacle to being better at selling and marketing? Oh, yeah. It is the primary and perhaps only obstacle. And if they would just worry about how do I serve these people better? You know, I, I had a conversation with somebody today. I think there's only two business models left. I think it's just gotten pulled into two ways. You're super transactional. You're super relational. You're picking one. I don't think there's anything. If you're in the middle, you're getting pulled one way or the other. Or you're making the decision to be more transactional because you want to scale. So you look at Amazon, all these people are like, I want to do that. I want no friction. I just want to print money. That's very, very difficult to do well and very few people can do it, but they chase that. And the other way is the easier way to go to say, I'm going to be high trust, high value, high caring, high intimacy, deep understanding of people's needs and serve them. That's just the profits on the other side of that. I saw this in Fortune a few months ago. Amazon has made $9 billion since 1995. Apple made $19 billion in the first quarter of this year. Yeah. And the dramatic difference between the entire existence of a company and a quarter, I think, tells a really interesting story about the power of story and marketing. And I mean, I have this phone here, which is the same $11 worth of glass and a couple chips you know, that they can get $1,100 for. It's just a very, very different thing that these companies do. But for most of the people that I think are going to read this book, they need to go super relational. And you can't scale caring to 3 billion people. You can scale it to that minimum viable market that you're talking about because they actually want that from you. They're trying yeah. to get it. Yes. And I want to encourage people. You know, Zig famously said, you can get everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. And he needed to say it that way because he was talking to transactional salespeople. Right. And so the artless people that you and I run into may have heard that sentence, but they've put the emphasis on the beginning, not the end. And they're saying, what's the least amount I can help other people get what they want so I can get the most amount of what I want? 
And because the internet is so high pressure and everything's so slippery, the next thing you know, they're sending you hustling emails and you and I can see through them like this, right? What happens if as salespeople or marketers, we just do half the sentence? You can help other people get what they want, period. And you don't get anything. You can help other people get what they want and it won't cost you that much. But you do. And I, when I was teaching capital, I used to tell people, you know, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to work for a nonprofit. I want to help people. I'm like, why are you so selfish? You know, why are you so selfish that you want to do that? And they're like, that's not being selfish. I'm like, do you feel good? They're like, nothing makes me feel better. I'm like, right. I mean, it's true. And I continue to tell people there's pyramids in Egypt and the pharaohs took everything that they wanted to take into the afterlife and put that, buried it with them in a pyramid. The pharaohs are gone and everything else is still here. So you're only really left with contribution in the end. Isn't that it? Yeah. And (laughs) it turns out, fortunately, that if you continue to make contribution, you earn trust and you earn attention, which gives you the platform to make more change happen. And you can make change for the better. So the contribution that we are capable of making, because I can't perform heart surgery, because I don't know how to do an eye exam, the contribution that we're capable of making is this contribution of opening doors for people to help them get to where they want to go. Okay. So the last question here, two teachers don't compete. They're just on the same board. Explain that concept for people here, because I think it's critical. And you always come up with these things that are so smart like that. And I read it. I'm like, of course, they're in two different places on the board and they're serving two different audiences. So you've got the horizontal and the vertical leading up to that, explaining that there's quadrants. And I think You have to be able to prove that you can at least do a two-by-two quadrant like that if you want to write a book at all, right? It's uh, it's the law. It's definitely one of the laws. (laughs) So differentiation is selfish because it says, how can I be seen as different? Positioning done properly is generous. It says, the person I seek to serve is confused. There are too many choices. How can I make it easier for them? I can make it easier for them by saying there are this these extremes, maybe it's price, maybe it's social contribution, maybe it's quality, whatever it is. And there's these extremes. And if you are the kind of person that's looking for extra organic, extra thick, expensive potato chips, that's what I sell. But if you come to me and say, I really like Lay's, my job is not to persuade you that you are wrong for wanting industrialized, super thin, fairly tasteless potato chips. It's to say, the Lay's are right over there. That's my job. What we get to do as teachers is earn enrollment from people who want to go where we are on the graph. We have to own the fact that we're on the graph. Because if we don't own that we're on the graph, then we're invisible. And if you're invisible, you can't be trusted. No one will give you attention. You can't earn anything. But if you say, this, I made this, then that means something. This is Marketing is the book. And when people hear this, it will be out today. But I also want you to talk for just a minute about the marketing seminar and what that is. And we'll put a link there for people who want to, I'm going to say, go on this journey with you because it's sort of a starting point that people go through a process. And you taught me a lot about what I do because it's making them take action on these things and these ideas. It's not watch this or listen to this. It's do this. And do this is how most of us learn. You don't learn how to swim you know, reading a book or reading the internet. You learn by getting in the water. And I think that's what this is. So tell us where they go. So uh, the, next, the next marketing seminar will be in January. You can get a preview at themarketingseminar.com. I care very much about online education. 
I think I've been doing it a long time. I understand some things that others have skipped. So I know how to make a course with a bunch of videos in it. I have those on Udemy and please go sign up for them. If you want to watch me give 50 lessons about marketing, it's right there. But what I discovered is that education is hard because there is a moment of incompetence before you learn something every time. And in that moment, that's the moment you realize you don't know something, which enables you to know it, people quit. And in that moment, the way through it is not by watching a video. The way through it is by doing the work, project-oriented, sharing the work. So we built this community and thousands of people are in it. And there's a new project posted by someone every 30 seconds to two minutes, 24 hours a day around the world. So there's 50 videos. I'm teaching each of these lessons only for five minutes. And then you've got two days to do the work, to answer the prompts, and most important, to comment on other people's. Because what you discover is that by the time you've read the 20th business plan or the 10th marketing positioning statement or the fifth promise, you start to see patterns, patterns you couldn't see in your own work. You start to see them in other people's work. So you're generously teaching each other because I'm not in it live. How could I be? You're generally generously teaching each other around these ideas. And at the end, 100 days later, you're really good at this. And so 6,000 people have been through it. And I'm going to keep doing it as long as it keeps making change like that happen. And the hard part is you got to commit. So it's not $12, it's $600. But if it's not worth $600 to you to get really good at marketing, you probably shouldn't be a marketer. What's the difference between that program and Alt-MBA? So then I said, well, what would happen if I went times 10? And so in Alt-MBA, you have to apply to get in. And I have alumni coaches who are on your case all the time. And I have Zoom conferencing like you and I are doing right now for groups of five. And it's 30 days, two hours a day. And instead of teaching a practical thing the way we are with marketing, we are teaching you how to see, how to make decisions, and how to persuade other people of where you're headed. So the Alt-MBA has had 3,000 people through it. We only take 125 people per session. And so it's a different kind of experience. I'm super proud of both of them. They sit next to each other. A lot of people who did one are doing the other one. And we're going to keep exploring the edges of this because I love books and books do their thing, but this is what's changing people's lives. I love books too. And I love that you're changing people's lives. I have a final question. Why did Adrian get to name your book? Because I was having trouble looking in the mirror, naming my own book in a way that would reach the person who wasn't going to buy it no matter what it was called. Right? If we just call it Seth's new book, 5,000 people would buy it. But one of Adrian's magical powers is he has empathy for the reluctant book buyer. Not the never book buyer, but the reluctant book buyer. And so he heard me talking about, the title for a long time was Make Things Better by Making Better Things, which I love as an expression, but it's not a good title. For <laughs> this book, we're saying there's no other book to buy first about marketing. You can buy another book later about marketing, but this book, this is the book you need to buy right now if marketing is what is on your mind. So we're going to people who have a marketing problem by offering them a marketing solution. And after that, if I get under their skin and teach them something else, you know that might work. But Adrian might be wrong. He's been wrong before. You should check in with me later. I'll check in with you later. Nikki Papadopoulos on the editorial staff named mine at lunch. And they were talking about the horrible name that I gave it, the Competitive Displacement Playbook. And they're like, nope. That will not sell any books. CDC. So I, I just got to know, you know, the romance ends when they don't even ask you, you know, about the title and you just get a note. This goes up on Amazon on Monday. If you have any edits, please let us know. I'm like, okay, so the romance is now completely over. We've been married for a long enough time now that this is what I get. So, 
But your book has an amazing title. It has a great title. She did a great job. Speak up for people who haven't heard it yet. Go ahead. I'm giving you the chance. Eat their lunch. Eat their lunch. And there's a lunch bag on the cover, right? And I don't think it comes with its own peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) No. If I would have been more Seth-like, it would come in a brown paper bag, which it should have. But it's fantastic. And it's a really important contribution to the work. And I think the people who are lucky enough to engage with it will it will change the way they see things, which is all you can hope for for a book. I do, because I think that they get all wrapped up in competition. And the only thing that you can do to really be a good competitor is create greater value. So if you want to really compete, go create greater value for people, and they're going to resonate with the greater value you create. That's the path forward. Yeah. No, the answer is not to erect trade barriers. The answer is not to try to keep people away from the market because information's everywhere now. You didn't invent the internet, but the internet's here. And the customer knows more than you do. And treating them like they're stupid isn't going to help. It seems to be fairly persistent, this internet thing. Yeah, I think it's going to be. My wife is famous for telling me when I was working with Prodigy, why are you wasting your time on that? The internet thing is never going to amount to anything. You should have a bakery. Exactly. (laughs) People are always going to eat. It up with both. (laughs) Yeah, the internet's very persistent. Well, thank you so much for being here. You're awesome. This was really fun. Thank you so much. That was my friend and mentor, Seth Godin, and his new book is called This Is Marketing. You can also find Seth's work at themarketingseminar.com. We will have links to buy the book on amazon.com and other retailers in the show notes, as well as a link to his courses, The Marketing Seminar and The Alt-MBA, so you can check those two things out. Thanks so much for being here. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I blog every day. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash... Anarino. You can also pick up my new book, Eat Their Lunch at Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble. Or if you're buying for your team in bulk, you can go to 800 CEO Read, the very best in the business. They're the best book people, and you should definitely go check them out. I'll see you back here next time in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.